This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, January 8th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. We are in Genesis chapter 36, so if you turn there, we're beginning what amounts to the fourth book, fourth and final book section, if you will, of Genesis, and it really focuses on the story of Joseph, and I've decided at least for the next month or so, I'm no longer going to put the text up on the screen. So you all need to bring your Bibles, you know, open them up, and read the words, okay? In our media-rich culture, it seems like we are getting a little lazy uh, about uh, our Bibles, and so my hope is that when I say open to 36, I hear this, you know, pages turning, it'd be awesome. I mean, I'm thinking about actually bringing like pockets full of candy for the little kids too. Like, show me you brought your Bible, getting a piece of candy. Genesis 36. Now, I'm going to read through this a little bit differently because there's just a lot of names. I'm not opposed to reading all the names, but it gets kind of confusing because a lot of names are repeated. So I'm going to read um, the first eight verses, and then I'm going to read basically... Uh, the topic sentence of every paragraph, if you will, and kind of skip through all the way to 37 verse 1. So if you follow along in chapter 36, beginning in verse 1, it says this, These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Anam, and the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Reul, and Oholibama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. And so Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Verse 9, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. I'm going to skip to verse 15. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zephokenes, Korah, Getam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz and the land of Edom, and these are the sons of Ada. Skipping to verse 20, these are the sons of Seir. The Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ena. Skipping to verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Verse 40. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timma, Elva, Jeheth, Oholibama, Elah, Pinan, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Megdil and Iram, these are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. And then verse 1 of chapter 37, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. 
This is God's word. And I probably pronounced half those names incorrectly, but God be praised. Now, Genesis is the book of beginnings. And we've been spending a lot of time, obviously, in this uh, one book. It's 50 chapters. It records the beginning of creation. In the first few chapters, the beginning of the fall of creation and the beginning of God's redemption of creation and His redemptive plan, which is what this whole existence is about, according to Ephesians 1. To display His glorious grace. The story written before the world was even created. His redemptive plan unfolds through a series of promises made to a man named Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. The family story. Now, Abraham's story, if we were to backtrack a little bit, began when God called him away from his homeland, away from his family, away from everything he knew, and said, I want you to go to a land that you have never seen. It would be called the land of Canaan. And while he went west, his brother Nahor, which we haven't talked about very much, remained in the east in one of, which was probably one of the wealthiest cities in Samaria. Abram was 75, he was powerless, he was penniless, but God promised him that he would make him a mighty nation and he would give him great lands, and even though his wife was barren and quite old, God promised him innumerable offspring. And so Abraham believed God. It would be 25 years before the promised child that would begin this innumerable offspring would be born. 25 years. It would be 65 years when that child was 40 that one of his servants would actually return to that homeland that he came from to find a son for his 40-year-old, or a wife for his 40-year-old son. And though God had made over that time great promises about people and property, Abraham actually died having really one son and owning one small burial plot of land. Meanwhile, Abram's unfaithful brother Nahor would become a great man that had a great city named after him. Now, we know that Abraham actually had two sons. A little over a decade after God had made that first promises, his frustrated and barren 80-plus-year-old wife, Sarah, gave Abraham her servant and said, make me a baby. It's not working. Her servant gave birth to a son named Ishmael, meaning God listens. And another 13 years later, when Abraham was about 100, Sarah gave birth to the son we talked about, Isaac, which means God laughs. And in time, there was a conflict between those two sons, really between the moms. And so Abraham abandoned Ishmael and his mom, and Isaac grew up as the chosen son in Abraham's family, knowing that God was going to fulfill these grand promises through him and his offspring. But like his father, before him, Isaac found himself getting older, and he found himself married to a barren woman with no kids. Holding on to what he felt like pretty empty promises. Like, that's great. I'm glad you're going to make me a great nation. I have no kids. I have nothing. 
Meanwhile, God blessed the unfaithful son, Ishmael, made him into a great nation, gave him 12 sons who ruled the whole of Arabia. Kind of seeing a pattern here. Well, in time, Isaac prayed for his wife, who was barren, said, please give us a child, and she became pregnant with twins who would be named Esau and Jacob. And when she was pregnant, God came and said, look, there are two nations in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided, and the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, Genesis 25 through 35, where we've been, have largely focused on the younger brother, Jacob. Chapters 37 to 50 will focus on Jacob's sons, and particularly his son, Joseph. And then you have this chapter 36, where we're at. And 36 is about Esau and his descendants. And even though God had promised to build this kingdom through Jacob, we find that he has built a kingdom for Esau. Chapter 36, with all of Esau's unfaithful fruitfulness. That's a strange term, right? Unfaithful and yet fruitful. Stands in contrast to Jacob in chapter 37, verse 1 who is relatively, comparatively speaking, unfruitful and yet faithful. And the question we're left with, are we okay with that? When we see the, the unfaithful being fruitful, being blessed, like prospering, and yet those who are faithful seemingly not, at least in the measurements of the world. And that's the story. You have Cain and Seth. You remember those are the first, well, Cain and Abel, Seth replaced Abel. Cain and Seth, you have Shem and Ham, those are Noah's sons. You have Isaac and Ishmael, you have Esau and Jacob. See, the story of God is a, is a story of contrasting identities, of different citizenships, of different kinds of prosperity. One seeks earthly prosperity and achieves sinfully, and the other seeks eternal prosperity and waits faithfully. One finds their life in this world, but loses it with God. And one loses their life in this world, but finds it with God. Those are the contrasting identities in the story of Genesis, and it's the same ones in the story of our lives. Let's take a look at Genesis 36 and see what the kingdom of Esau looked like and, and, and how it came about. As I said, it's a description of his vast kingdom. And it is, it's big, it's great, it's mighty. The timeline's not exactly clear. But the first eight verses that I read describe Esau's family before he left the land of Canaan. So he lived in Canaan for a while. While living there, Esau married three wives at least. There's some argument that there might have been a fourth. They were from among the Canaanites, so the Hivites, but a, a version of the Canaanites. And 
Ishmaelites, the daughters of Ishmael. These three wives, follow along if you can, gave birth to five sons. And beginning in verse 9, what you see is, through really the end of the chapter, the description of Esau's estate and his kingdom as he began to grow when he moved into the hill country away from Canaan in Seir, which would eventually be called the land of Edom. And so the text of 36 past that first section, which is kind of a summary, is, is a breakdown and it has different sections, which I read the headings of, just to help you give a, a, an understanding of what's going on, because God does put this purposefully there, and we need to understand why. The first section, verses 10 through 14, really are the ten grandsons of Esau from two sons of the five. Got that? I'm sure you'll remember this. There will not be a test. The second section, verses 15 and 19, indicate that all these sons he had, really grandsons, and perhaps two of his other sons, became chiefs. And as chiefs, like what a chief is, a chief is probably over at least, well, probably thousands of people because it goes chiefs are over clans and clans are collections of tribes. So there's, they're giving you size here. It wasn't just tribal leaders. They were chiefs. The third section, which is verses 20 to 30, lists the seven sons that were currently inhabiting the land when Esau came and lived there. They were the sons that Esau in some way displaced, but also intermarried with. So they became family with the current residents in the land. The fourth section of five, in verses 31 to 39, identifies what are called eight kings of Edom, indicating that this is not just some loosely grouped, kind of tribal-related tribes. It's actually an organized kingdom. And then the last section, which is, talks about chiefs again. There's 11 chiefs, but they're more uh, connected with locations, and so they largely represent territory. So it's like listing 11 districts. So you have this huge nation, 80 names in all, representing chiefs and, and locations and kings and, and districts, all these things. Representing a huge number of people, great power, and great prosperity. Nahor, if you remember, became a city. Ishmael became a collection of tribes. But Esau is a nation. A nation. The very thing that God promised Jacob he would become. And you ask yourself, well, how did, how did Esau prosper? How did he bring about his prosperity? Well, the theme of it is this. He told himself, and this is the kind of thing that many people tell themselves. Perhaps you're tempted to tell yourself this as well. The only way I'm going to prosper in this life is to be unfaithful. Is to be unfaithful. You go, I've never said that. Well, perhaps he said it a different way. The only way I'm going to survive this is to sin. The only way I can succeed in whatever it is you want to succeed is to compromise. The only way I can get what I want when I want it is to disobey God, reject His ways, do it myself, 
And that's exactly what Esau does, and the scary thing is he's successful in doing so. And if we're honest, we all wouldn't mind being Esau. I mean, I, he's winning. Right? He's winning in the eyes of, he's winning. He's got power, he's got prosperity, he's got success, he's got comfort, he's got all the things that, in the quietness of my own heart, I wish I had at different times in different ways. But Jesus, you know, asked some really poignant questions. He was really good. He taught a lot, and particularly the book of Matthew records the teachings, but I think he was more effective asking questions. By more effective, I mean he like can ask like one sentence question. It's just like a laser sword into your heart. And he asked this. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his life? See, Esau is the powerful one, right? Esau is the popular one. Esau is the prosperous one. But let's not forget that Esau's not the chosen one. Esau is not the one that God loves. In fact, Esau is the one the Bible warns us not to imitate. Esau is the one who, if you remember, despised his birthright and traded God for a bowl of soup. That's really what it comes down to. That's how the Bible describes it in Hebrews. Esau is the one who chose to move away from God's presence in Canaan to make room for all his stuff. Esau is the one who couldn't care less about God's commands or God's promises. In fact, Esau is the one the Bible says God hated. I mean, it says that. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And so as I'm reading this, I'm thinking like this, honestly, and I, I, I almost skipped 36. I was so close. And then Mark challenged me. He's like, really? Going to skip this? I've seen you preach other, like a lot harder. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what's there. Even you read the commentators, got like one paragraph. I don't know. And then they move on to the next 37. <laughs> But as I was reading this, I, I thought to myself, okay, I know God hates Esau. I mean, it's not like, I wonder if he, he says it. And yet, if this is what God's hatred looks like, what might that say about his love? What might that say about his love? And so what, what's Jacob doing at this time? As you have national Esau building... What was Jacob, the one the Bible says God loves doing while Esau's building this kingdom? We know because the Bible tells us explicitly that God is not present in the same way with Esau that he is with Jacob. God had promised Jacob directly, I will be with you, I will keep you, I will be there. Okay. So, that means then in God's presence, as Esau's building this vast empire, 
What's Jacob doing in the presence of God? God's with him. God's keeping him. Well, we know that as Esau's been doing this for probably about 20 years, Jacob is being cheated and exploited as he works under his father-in-law. Wait a second. Isn't isn't Jacob like the Christian? Isn't Jacob like the the faithful guy? Isn't Jacob the blessed, the loved one? Because the unfaithful, cursed dude that rejected God for a bowl of soup is like rocking it. And Jacob is suffering. Is it possible that suffering or our perspective of it is off? Or maybe prosperity and our perspective of it is a little off? After 20 years of Esau having a nation and Jacob working, he had very little. He had two wives. He did have two concubines. He had 11 sons and a daughter and a bunch of livestock. And although he's wealthy at some measure, he is not settled. He's not established. He has no home. He has no property. He lives a a nomadic lifestyle of a wandering shepherd still. There's no kings. There's no kingdoms. When he meets his brother for the first time, right after leaving where he was, Jacob brings this kind of motley crew of kids and servants and livestock. Esau brings a 400-man army. We have Esau, I'm sorry, Jacob, now, as this nation is there, just living in the land of his father's sojournings in Canaan. Leading a relatively, it seems, simple life in the land where God told him to live with him. Even though Jacob is the one God loves, he has no vast kingdom. He has no army to defend it. But Jacob has a few things that Esau desperately needs. One might argue that Esau actually in his ambition is driven by his desire to obtain the very things that Jacob has actually been given by God. See, God has given Jacob a name. He gave him an identity. He's told Jacob who he is. You know how many people are searching for an answer to that question today and looking to all kinds of things to discover it? Esau's one, and there's lots of Esau's. I'm tempted to be one myself when I'm forgetful of what God has said and who I am. He's given Jacob purpose. He's given Jacob direction. He's given him answers to the greatest questions that every one born seeks answers to. Who am I? Why am I here? And how should I live? That's what Esau, I am convinced, is seeking, as is anyone who ambitiously pursues prosperity, things that Jacob has been given. God has spoken great promises to Jacob, but I wonder if they might not seem very great in light of Esau's greatness. I wonder if 
for all of us, of God's promises to provide for us and to protect us and to bless us and even be with us sometimes feel a bit empty and meaningless when we find ourselves impoverished or vulnerable or hurting or just with less than them. And we probably should feel that way if this is all there is. If this is all there is, this, we should walk around sad sack all the time. But this isn't all there is. The psalmist writes, I think, something really powerful that we probably have read across and and don't really pick up on a piece of it, but in Psalm 84, verse 10, cries out, For a day in your courts, Crowns of the Lord, right? For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That's where I heard that song, right? Better is one day in your courts. Don't ever sing that song in this church, right? No, it's, right. it's from this psalm. It's fine. It's just a weird rhythm. I just don't like it. But one day in your courts, right? Better than a thousand elsewhere. And it continues and said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And we all are like, yes! That's right! I'll be a doorkeeper in the house of God. Well, think about this for a second. Do you really believe that psalm if getting to be a doorkeeper in heaven means having to be a doormat on earth? Because I mean, I'll sit in the house of God, open the door for people. It's rad, but like, can I kind of be a doorkeeper down here too and kind of have some good stuff, some prosperity, some joy, some whatever? Well, what if it means you're a doormat here? Because that's what Jesus was. I think Kevin DeYoung said it. He said, we're so surprised at suffering because we don't expect to suffer. Esau and his family would give birth to princes. Not prin- well, princesses too. Royalty, right? Got kings in their line. Jacob and his family, at least in the story of Genesis and especially as it moves into Exodus, will give birth to slaves. I'd rather give birth to princes, right? In truth, only one of Jacob's sons would ever rise to power. His name would be Joseph, whose story we're going to read over the next couple months. He would become a literal prince of Egypt, but the path to that palace would come through great suffering. And throughout the entire experience of his suffering, not knowing, God never said, hey, by the way, you're going to rule this place one day. Don't worry. Never said that. Yet, as you look at Joseph's attitude and his perspective through the entire experience, he never complained. He never lashed out at God for not fulfilling his promises, for not meeting his expectations, even before he sat at the right hand of the Pharaoh while he found himself sitting in in a hole in the ground having been abused by his brothers, and sitting in a prison cell, having been wrongly accused, 
He sat in both those places trusting that God loved him though he had nothing. Though he had nothing. See, Jacob the believer has a very different life than Esau the unbeliever. Esau would, as the text tells us and history tells us, would become synonymous with Edom. In fact, it even says in verse 8, Esau is Edom. Jacob was obviously Israel. So you have two kingdoms at work here. You have Edom, you have Israel, Esau and Jacob, and the two kingdoms could not be any different. Any more different, I should say. One is full of people actively pursuing prosperity in the world because they believe this world is all there is. The other is patiently waiting on God. Not saying it's easy, but they are waiting. Enduring what amounts to earthly poverty because they know that this is not all there is. And based on appearances, one looks much more attractive than the other. But based on the truth, one is much more desirable than the other. Edom has always existed or had always existed as a brother nation to Israel. Two peoples, if you will, from the same father who endured a history of sibling rivalry. And just as there was a colorful conflict Between Jacob and Esau, there was one between Israel and Edom over the years. Some argue that it's still represented today between Israel and Palestine. Historically, Edom was there when Israel first came out of Egypt. So as the nation under Egypt, the the Israelites became a nation in slavery, and they are coming out under Moses' leadership, they actually run into Edom first. And Moses sends messengers to Edom saying, hey, will you let us go through your land? And he addresses the letter, your brother Israel. But Edom says, nope, you walk through here, we're going to kill you. Okay. And they go around. The rivalry continued in different ways, and hundreds of years later, Edom joined the Babylonians. When the Babylonians came and conquered Israel, or they actually helped them destroy the city of Jerusalem in 586. Their own brothers. The Edomites actually helped capture fleeing Israelites and then turn them in to the Babylonians. And then the Edomites took up residence in the homes of those who had vacated, their own brothers. They took their houses. Understandably, this angered God so much that he devoted an entire book of prophecy that I doubt you've ever read named Obadiah. You might need to preach it. And it pretty much is devoted to condemning Edom. And he promised to make Edom a wasteland for what they did, and he has What was Edom is pretty much a wasteland today. But 
The prophecy of Obadiah condemns Edom and in doing so gives us insight into exactly what characterizes the sin of Esau, what characterizes the, the, the way of Esau. And I would argue that it gives us a picture of how any, what looks like a believer could fall. See, Edom is condemned largely because they are prideful. They pridefully reject God's way. They reject God's words. They, they say, you know, the way you want to do things, God, the places and the plans you have are unhelpful or unnecessary, and I would trade it for a bowl of soup tomorrow. They're prideful. They think they know better than God. And so they ignore His word. But more than that, we see the Edomites indulge their desires. They lived where they wanted. They married who they wanted. They did what they wanted. That began with Esau and continued throughout the nation. We don't care who you are, God. We don't care how we're supposed to live, God. We're going to do what we feel is right, what we feel is good, what will make us happy. You know one of the overarching themes in culture today? Heck, it's in our founding documents. Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Pursue what makes you happy. But more than that, they separated from their family. They isolated from their brothers, from the community where God said they were supposed to dwell. And more than that, they spend their lives in resentment against their brothers. The nation of Esau, nation of Edom, isn't largely a product of resentment and bitterness towards a younger brother. The way of Esau is the way of pride and indulgence and isolation and resentment. And the pursuit of prosperity, whether that be power or popularity or pleasure in this world, requires the same kind of commitment. Essentially, you have to believe what Esau did. In order for me to prosper in this world, I'm going to have to be unfaithful. And that's Literally what people decide, maybe subconsciously, when they begin to compromise and reject God's ways and say those are outdated, outmoded, and they won't lead me to this kind of success that I want. But is that the kind of success God wants for you? Well, As we conclude this, the climax of the family conflict between Edom and Israel actually came during the life of Jesus. I've talked about this before, but Herod the Great was a descendant of Esau. And when Jesus came into this world, he functioned as the king, if you will, of Judea, of the region under Rome. Herod the Great, if you know anything about him, was an evil, horrible man who did evil, horrible things. He was just disgusting in every sense of the word. In the eyes of the world, he was very successful. He was very prosperous. At the same time, he was literally rotting from the inside out, and I mean that physically and spiritually. He was a man devoted to pursuing his own glory, to building his own kingdom, and to committing whatever sin was necessary, even killing his own family members, to get or protect the worldly prosperity he desired. He was a true son of Esau. 
And it was under this Edomite king that a son of Jacob, the true king of Israel, was born. Jesus. Now by taking the form of a humble servant, right? The true king, King Jesus, revealed a very different way to prosper in this world and beyond. We always talk about like, I just want to live like Jesus. I, I, really? I know that a lot of us want to live like the post-resurrection life like Jesus. He's all glorified. But do we realize, kind of like Joseph on the throne, the pathway that they took? Jesus believed and taught the very opposite of what the son of Esau taught, that the only way to truly prosper is to be faithful. See, where Esau rejected his God-given identity, Jesus embraced it. And where Esau indulged his desires, Jesus lived a life of self-denial. And where Esau separated from his family because they were a threat, Jesus actually got close to his family and his enemies. And where Esau hated and resented his brothers, Jesus died for those he loved while they were sinners. But by waiting on and trusting in God's promises, like Jacob, Jesus had a life of poverty, he had a life of rejection, and he had a life of death. For everyone hated him. But waiting and trusting on God's promises led to his resurrection and ultimately to his glorification. See, by all measures, and by, I mean by every measure, it's amazing. People are like, oh, Jesus was a great teacher. and Jesus was this. Like, Jesus' life sucked. He, he, he died falsely accused. He was hated up to that point by nearly everyone. Rejected by his family. Rejected by the leaders who he had respected. Rejected by the government. By every measure, prosperity, power, up until the point where he died, he had failed. He did not prosper in this world, but that's because he looked well beyond it. And if only we could do that. Suffering is so difficult for us because we can't see past what's right in front of us. And how many times does the Lord say through the psalmist, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes. This is why when Jesus was interrogated by the Roman governor Pilate, right? A guy basically says, you know, I could kill you. I have the power to, to save you. Are you a king? And he says in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you're a king then, huh? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world 
to be prosperous and have an amazing life full of joy and money and power? No. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. My kingdom is not of this world, he says twice. My kingdom is not of this world. And my question for you is, your kingdom only in this world? Is all that you identify yourself as, is is all that you hope in and find meaning in of this world only? Because Jesus came to establish a different kind of kingdom, a different kind of way, and He's calling us to a different kind of life that we might hope in a very different kind of prosperity. One that extends beyond some kind of measurable legacy in this life. We would like to talk about legacy. I just want to leave a legacy. Do we realize, and I pray we won't forget that Esau and his legacy, which is vast, is never mentioned again in the rest of the Bible after Genesis 36, except for a few times as a warning or a judgment. I ask you and I challenge you, and I've sat on this myself this week as I consider just the different things that I think I've accomplished in this life. Whether it be through work or ministry or family and you kind of like, okay. Don't devote yourself to building a legacy that will be remembered by men but forgotten by God. Don't devote yourself to building a legacy that will be remembered by men but Forgotten by God. Listen to the voice of Jesus who says in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things that you think you want will be added to you. Seek His kingdom first. We take communion every time we gather to remember our true king and our true citizenship. This is a powerful moment. It's a meal for those who believe in Jesus, who who have confessed with their mouths and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, who believe that Jesus lived and died in their place. It's where we receive life from Jesus, and it is where we remind ourselves that we are to give our lives to Jesus in a real and tangible way. It's where I remember that I have a new life. I have a new life in Christ and the old is gone. I've been given a new identity, a new purpose, and a new hope. And though others may search for those things, I have the answers to the questions of who I am and why I'm here. And I have a renewed life, right? That, that I come up and I know my life is a renovation project that it's very easy for me to go, oh man, Esau's life looks good. I know I could prosper here. It's a little compromise, a little rejection. See, the Spirit in me, and I know the Spirit in you, fights to live by God's promises that at times can feel empty. 
because I'm not seeing some tangible manifestation of it. My flesh is fighting for worldly prosperity. I need renewal every week. And to be reminded that this is also a shared life, that I don't live this life alone, that we need each other, that we gather together particularly to stir one another on towards good works, to remind each other of our true identity. As we begin to despair, as we look at our bank accounts and our power and go, oh man, we go, remember who you are. Remember, it's all going to burn up. Keep your eyes up. And that I have an eternal life. That this life is not all there is. So let us endeavor, therefore, to live as if this world is passing away. Do not merely invest your life in your kingdom, but divest your life for God's. Let's pray.